Please uh, take your Bibles with me this evening in Ezekiel chapter 25. Your pastor could hardly get through, what was it, 15 verses this morning in an hour. We're going to do four chapters today. Four chapters this evening in Ezekiel 25 through 28. So buckle your seatbelts. Title of the message, Pride Goeth Before a Fall. Several messages on pride that we've addressed in this series uh, in one way or another. This evening's message will be the pinnacle of examination when it comes to pride. We are going to look at a section of prophecy and judgment that will particularly highlight pride and the history of pride throughout the created order. Ezekiel 25 marks somewhat of a pivotal point in the book of Ezekiel. Since the very beginning of the book, the prophecies of Ezekiel have been focused almost exclusively on judgment against the city of Jerusalem. But in Ezekiel 24, verse 14, God proclaimed that His mercy and long-suffering toward Israel was over. Their time was up. The king of Babylon had now got it into his head and into his heart. He had set his face against Jerusalem. The city was doomed. It was was going to be destroyed. The, The prophecies of God against the city no longer needed to be delivered. He was delivering those prophecies with the expectation and desire that the people would repent. They refused. So now God really didn't need to deliver them anymore. Repentance, the time for repentance, the window for repentance had closed. Nebuchadnezzar was on his way. Now Ezekiel's ministry shifts from judgment against Israel to judgment against the nations surrounding Israel. Though God was angry with Israel as a nation and though He was judging them severely for their wickedness, we call it chastening, the chastening of His children, this did not change the fact that they were God's chosen people. This morning in our Sunday school hour, we looked at Uh, Jacob a little bit as we consider Jesus Christ's words in John chapter 1 verse 50 and 51 to Nathanael that he would see the Son of Man and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man that they all would see that glory. We referenced Jacob and reminded ourselves that indeed there had been promises made to Abraham, Isaac and to Jacob that God would bless them that He had chosen them. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The family of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob was a family elect of God. Not unto salvation. They were not elect unto salvation. They were elect unto service and blessing. That is very important. It's the distinction that Paul makes in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Not that we are elect unto salvation like Israel was elect unto salvation because that's not what he was saying and that's not what Israel was. Israel wasn't elect unto salvation. They were elect unto God's using of them. They were elect unto service and blessing. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And even though God would allow other nations to be a part of their judgment, God will allow them to be judged through the power and the, the, the violence of other nations, those nations that acted against Israel still bore the responsibility of breaching this. Every nation that cursed Israel, even if it was God who was using that nation to chasten His people, every nation that went up against Israel would find judgment for cursing the family of Abraham. 
This is why David, when he was fleeing from Saul, refused to kill Saul. David said, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. See, God had chosen out Saul for a purpose. And until God chose to set Saul aside, that purpose was consecrated by God and and must not be worked against. Israel is a nation consecrated by God and any nation that went up against Israel, even if Israel deserved it and they were receiving this uh, from God removing His hand of protection from them, that nation was still accountable for going against God's people. We step into Ezekiel chapter 25. And in verses 1-7, through the first of these prophecies is against the nation of Ammon. The Ammonites. Notice what it says. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Ezekiel had already prophesied in in chapter 21, verse 28, that Ammon would be one of those nations that was destroyed when Babylon came against Jerusalem. So Ammon had already been prophesied against. Now again, uh, God is commanding Ezekiel to particularly aim this prophecy to set his face against the Ammonite people. When the temple in Jerusalem falls, God says the nation of Ammon will rejoice in their destruction. And for this rejoicing in Israel's destruction, God says He will cause them to fall at the hand of Babylon as well. Notice what He says. Say unto the Ammonites, verse 3, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God, because thou saidst, Aha, against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Behold, therefore, I will deliver thee to the men of the east for a possession, and they shall set their palaces in thee, and make their dwellings in thee, and they shall eat thy fruit, and shall drink thy milk. And so they spoke against God's sanctuary, they rejoiced in the destruction of Israel, and God says, you will be overrun as well by the Babylonians. As we continue in verses 8-11, through 11, we see a prophecy against Moab and against Edom. Notice what it says in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord God, because that Moab and Seir do say, Behold, the house of Judah is like unto all the heathen. Therefore, behold, I will open the side of Moab from the cities and from his cities which are on the frontiers, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth, Baalmeon, and Kiriathaim, unto the men of the east with the Ammonites, and will give them in possession that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So he speaks first against Moab, and then in verses uh, 13 and following, he'll speak against Seir. We'll get there in a moment, and we will also get there in a few weeks. Uh, Seir is Edom. And as we will see in a prophecy several weeks ahead, Edom will be prophesied against in a very particular way for their attitude and for their actions against Israel. However, in verse 8, God charges these nations, particularly the nation of Moab, of saying that Judah and that the sanctuary was no greater than any other heathen people. They denied that Israel was God's chosen people. They denied any peculiarity of God and His sanctuary. For this wickedness, God said, Moab will be exposed to the attacks of the enemy, specifically the attacks of Ammon and the attacks of Babylon. And in doing so, He said in verse 7, they shall know that God is the Lord. God turns His eyes toward Seir or Edom in verses 12 through 14. Edom's sin was far deeper than Moab's. God describes in verses 12-14 through that they didn't just discount Israel, but they actually lifted up their hand against Israel and took vengeance against them. We can trace the hostility between Israel and Edom all the way back to their two founding fathers. The brothers, Jacob and Esau. Both of their names were changed in Scripture. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, or he was called Israel. Esau was named Edom. He was named Edom shortly after he sold his birthright for a mess of red pottage. 
even as their mother Rebecca was pregnant with these two boys. Genesis 25 verse 22 tells us that these two children were struggling together within her. They were struggling in her womb so much so that she actually inquired of the Lord, God, what's going on with these two? What is going on in my womb? She, I don't know if she was afraid. I don't know what, what the, the particular um, emotions would have been that would cause her, what she felt in these two boys in the womb, that caused her such concern that she went before the Lord and said, God, what's going on here? But the Scriptures tell us that they struggled together within her. From time to time, my wife and I would get ultrasounds of our twins when they were in the womb. And it seemed as though we could never get through one of those without seeing one kick the other in the head or, or encroach upon the other's space. So uh, we can understand perhaps a little bit of this idea of them struggling in the womb. Uh, but but to, the, to the degree that, that Rebecca would have fallen before the Lord and said, God, what is going on here with these two must have been um, pretty intense. So God told her that there were two nations in her womb. Nations that would become Israel and Edom. They would be contentious and He said that the elder Esau would serve the younger Jacob. You all know the story of their youth. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Jacob deceives his father into receiving the blessing of the firstborn. And so Jacob became the preeminent brother. Esau did indeed as well become the great nation of Edom. Edom would be very hostile against Israel throughout all of their days. We'll talk more about Edom in a few weeks when we get to that next passage of prophecy. For this hostility, uh, hostility of Edom against Israel, a hostility which God did not allow nor did He condone, Edom would be judged. There's in fact an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the judgment against Edom. It's also the smallest book in our Bible, Obadiah. Obadiah is a prophecy that is directed entirely against the nation of Edom. We'll preach through that someday. So, because they took vengeance against Judah, God proclaimed that He would take vengeance against them, that their cities would become desolate and their destruction would be complete. So he says in, verses, uh, in verse 15, 14, excuse me, And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord God. It's interesting that with most of these men, with, I mean with most of these nations, God declares that the nation would know that He is the Lord. Moab will know that I am the Lord. Ammon will know that I am the Lord. Israel will know that I am the Lord. Edom? What did he say? Edom will know my vengeance. Edom will know my vengeance. Edom had some hard times coming to them because of their actions against Israel. Verses 15 through 17, as we round out Ezekiel chapter 25 is a prophecy against the Philistine people. By this point in history, we don't hear much of the Philistines. The Philistines had uh, waned in power uh, greatly. They had kind of mishmashed and mixed with a bunch of other cultures. And so there was not a whole lot of, of uh, hearing of the Philistines by the time of the captivity of Judah. However, they are still around and God tells them because of their violence against Israel, a history well recorded. We can see it in Judges. We can see it in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. God tells them that He will cut them off and destroy the remnant from their sea coasts. Notice what He says in verse 15. Because the Philistines have dealt by revenge and have taken vengeance with a despiteful heart to destroy it for the old hatred. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will stretch out Mine hand upon the Philistines and I will cut off the Carathemes and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. So the Philistines, for the old hatred that they had between them and Israel, would also be recompensed. And in doing so, they would know that He is the Lord. As we begin verse 26, please look at it with me in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me. 
The next three chapters of Scripture turn their focus toward one Gentile city. Can you imagine? Here in this chapter of Scripture, God focused on four entire nations. And now the next three chapters are going to focus on one city. One city only. A city named Tyrus. Now, this prophecy is penned on the first day of the first month of the 11th year of King Jehoiachim's captivity. As you look at what I have on the screen behind me, what I am highlighting here, it's significant to note that this is the first prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that is out of order. Up to this point, Ezekiel has recorded the prophecies in the order that he has received them. This prophecy is not so. In Ezekiel 24, that prophecy was written on the 10th day of the 10th month of the 9th year. The prophecy of Ezekiel 25-28 through 28 was written on the first day of the first month of the 11th year. And then in Ezekiel 29, we'll see that that is written on the 12th day of the 10th month of the 10th year. So we're actually go, we'll, we'll go back in time when we hit Ezekiel 29. Verses chapters 25 through 20, excuse me, 26. It should say 26 there. 26 through 28 are out of order. Now, if you're confused, take out your outline that I gave you at the beginning of this series. I have posted when each date of each of the prophecies is, and I have also told you what order they are all in. And there are little asterisks next to the ones that are out of order, and I'll tell you which one is supposed to be in which place and where they are and why they are. So that outline will help you greatly if you have it. Say, Pastor, we lost ours. Um, we used it to wrap up our chewing gum and throw it away. Uh, we were cold one day, so we used it for our fireplace. Whatever it is, talk to me, and I'll get you another copy of that outline if you need. I'll also try to get it online. I need to get, start doing that. So that means that this prophecy, the one from 26 to 28, was actually written 16 months after the prophecy of Ezekiel 24 and 25. That means one year and four months later. So we're, we're scanning, uh, 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 spanning, excuse me, a pretty large gap this evening. I hope you can wrap your mind around that a little bit. So this city, this city that will, will consume our thoughts this evening, the city of Tyrus. This is a city which is also known in the Bible as the ancient city of Tyre. I hope that's at least a little bit um, viewable for you this evening. The city of Tyre. And this city was the most notable city in an empire known as the Phoenician Empire. They were an empire that was much farther north uh, than Israel was, and Tyre was a part of the Phoenician Empire, though on the more southerly end of that empire. The city was situated a good distance away from Jerusalem, yet it was without a doubt, without a doubt, the most influential city in the entire region. The city was actually broken into two parts. There was a part of the city which was on an island, and a part of the city which was on the mainland. That's not too uncommon necessarily. Even one of our large cities in the United States has a piece of that city on an island. New York does it not have a piece of the city that's actually on an island. So it was a, a similar situation where it was a very large city, it was a very grand city, it was a very powerful city, and a part of that city was on an island, and then there was a link to the mainland, and then a part of the city was on the mainland. There were two deep harbors that, connected, that were connected from this city with a canal. It was an extremely well-positioned city for defense. It was very strong. It was very large. It was a commercial powerhouse. It was the place to go if you wanted to get a ship and go somewhere. It was the place to go. It wielded significant influence over the region. It's quite possible when Jonah caught a vessel to go west, it's quite possible he caught that 
vessel in Tyre to go to Tarshish. It's quite possible that anyone that wanted to trade with Rome, anyone that wanted to trade with Greece, anyone that wanted to trade with anything, any seafaring place would have have to deal with the city of Tyre. So it was a very important city and a very powerful city. Historically speaking, Tyre had a very good relationship with the nation of Israel and with its kings. In 1 Kings chapter 5, we read of a man named Hiram. Hiram was the king of Tyre at the time of the days of David and Solomon. And he was actually instrumental in building the temple of God. Hiram greatly loved David, the Scriptures tell us. And he supplied his son Solomon with all the wood necessary to build the temple. Those cedars of Lebanon were supplied by King Hiram. These two, uh, Hiram and Solomon, just like Hiram and David, would have a tremendous relationship throughout their days. But like Israel, at some point in their history, the king of Tyre was ruled by a wicked man. And so this city too had rejoiced in Israel's destruction and for their wickedness, as God mentioned, they too would be destroyed under the judgment of God. Ezekiel 26 is a description of this city's destruction. In verses 1 through 6, they, God declares that many nations will rise up against this city for its wealth and for its riches. They will want to be a part of the conquest because they will want to be a part of its wealth. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 26 of Ezekiel. Son of man, because that Tyrus hath set against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken. That was the gates of the people. She is turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee as the sea causeth his waves to come up. Notice how God is using ocean analogies here because it's something that the nation of Tyre would understand. They're a seafaring city. God says in the same way that the sea would cause a wave to come up against a wall and crash against it and cover that wall with a wave, in the same way I'm going to send nations to come and crash against you. They shall destroy the walls of Tyrus, verse 4. They shall break down his towers. I will scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. And her daughters, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In verses 7-14, through 14, God describes specifically the Babylonian campaign against this city. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will surround the city and begin to mount a siege against it. Though the city is strong, though unmatched um, in defense, yet Babylon's power will tear down their defenses. They will spoil the riches of the city. They will tear it down brick by brick, God says. And in verses 15 through 21, God describes the astonishment of the entire world at Tyre's destruction. Tyre was powerful. Tyre, Tyre was influential. God says the poets will say that the islands shook when Tyre fell. The nation it was so influential, it would be as if a great nation today collapsed and the entire world would feel the reverberations of that economically and philosoph uh, philosophically and politically that the whole nation would be shaken by such a great fall. That's kind of the idea that God is saying. The poets will say the island shook when Tyre fell. People will be amazed that a city of such grandeur and a city of such wealth and a city of such importance was cast down. And God's promise in verse 21 is that the city of Tyre shall never be found again. Look what He says. I will make thee a terror and thou shalt be no more. Though thou shalt be sought for, yet shalt thou never be found again, saith the Lord. This once essential city of the world has never again found greatness. Exactly as God said. Now there is a city called Tyre. 
it has been rebuilt. It's a very small city. It is absolutely inconsequential in any sort of trade or commerce. The city of Tyre has never again found any grandeur. Chapter 27 is a lamentation for this once great city. In Ezekiel 19, we covered a a lamentation. When we did that, we did not have time at that point to cover what a lamentation is. A, A lament, a lamentation in the Bible, and particularly in Israel, was a funeral song. And typically it was recited to honor the dead and, to the, and the deceased. It highlighted the positive aspects of that person's loss and realized uh, uh, the positive aspects of that person, not, not that person's loss, the positive aspects of that person and the loss realized because of that person's death. As far as I have found in Scripture... Tyre is the only non-Jewish city to receive a lamentation in the Bible. Specifically for her. The only other non-Jewish lamentation I could find is in Ezekiel chapter 28. Tyre was beautiful. Tyre was powerful. Tyre had every advantage. Tyre was well-loved. And Tyre was prominent. This city is meant to highlight the beauty and the grandeur. Or excuse me, this lament was, was meant to highlight the beauty and the grandeur of this city. And much of this chapter is focused upon those many nations that traded with Tyre. Tarshish in Spain. Greece. Tubal. Meshech. Beth Torgamah. Rhodes. Edom. Judah. Israel. Damascus. Dedan. Arabia. Kedar. Sheba, Teama, Mesopotamia. All of these were cities that had traded with Tyre. Economically, there were very few rivals to such a grand and powerful city. Their destruction would shake the very foundations of commerce around the world. It would rock the, the known world to its core. And that is what Ezekiel 27 is. It's a lamentation for the, for the beauty of this city. So what went wrong with Tyre? Yes, they spoke against Israel. That was the sin. What was the root? The root was pride. Their beauty caused a pride that would eventually lead to their destruction. And as we step into chapter 28, we're going to focus more and more uh, on not just this city, but also upon a certain man in the city that characterized the reason for their downfall. We've seen the description of the city of Tyre. It is a uh, a, a beautiful city and a proud city. Then we're going to see in chapter 28 a description of the prince of Tyre. The prince of Tyre was the man who led the city. And then finally we're going to see a description of one called the king of Tyre. And as we look at this description, what we'll find is that this king of Tyre is in fact Satan himself. And what God is going to highlight as we walk through this chapter, He's described the beauty of the city. He's described the prominence of the city. What He's going to highlight as we walk through this chapter is how pride, the pride of the city, was rooted in the heart of its prince or its king. And the pride of that king was rooted in the very sin that caused Satan to fall from glory. In chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, the Scriptures say, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God. 
Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thy understanding thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver unto thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore will I bring strangers upon thee and and the terrible of the nations and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the sea. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hands of strangers. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28 speak of this man, the prince of Tyrus. This earthly leader in Tyre is a man who, in his success and wisdom, literally thought himself to be better than the other men of the earth. Now, this is not uncommon of great leaders. They see their success and develop what we call a God complex in today's vernacular, where they truly believe that they are something more than the men around them, that they are some superhuman, that they are a god. And that was this prince of Tyrus. He thought that he was indeed a god. He saw himself as something greater than man. Verses 3-5 through tell us that this man was exceedingly wise. In fact, God says he was a man wiser than Daniel. Wow. Daniel was a very wise man, was he not? We read the story in in the book of Daniel about Daniel and how he interacted with the king. And we read about how he was made the chief of the, of the, the magicians because of his wisdom and because of his understanding. And God says, you, Prince of Tyre, are a man that's so wise. You are wiser than Daniel. You are wiser than this great wise man in Babylon. And because of his wisdom, he had done an excellent job running the city. He was exceedingly wealthy. This success and this wealth, as it has a tendency to do, filled his heart with great pride. And this pride, God hates. Verses 6-10 through are committed to the destruction of this man. God promised destruction at the hand of strangers promised he would die like the men who came and went from his city, that he would drown in the sea. No exalted death. You know, rich men die just like poor men do. They can't take anything with them. The wise man dies just like the fool does. That wisdom is not going to do him any good. There's only one thing that changes the state of our death, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That's the only difference between a man that goes to heaven and a man that goes to hell. And really, there's not much else that matters. How interesting it is as you look in this passage. In verse 9, God says, Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? What a statement. Prince of Tyrus, you say you're God. You say you are, you are greater than a man. When the men stand before you with swords in their hands and they are looming over you about ready to kill you, what are you going to do? Going to tell them, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't kill me, I'm God. It's not going to work, Prince of Tyrus. They're going to cut you down like they cut any other man down because that's all you are, Prince of Tyrus. You're nothing more than a man. A man like any other man. There are men in this age, there have been men in every age that have exalted themselves. They have exalted themselves to the extent that they feel they can exalt themselves against God Himself. They scorn God. They ignore God. They speak against God. And every single one of them throughout history has died. Not one of them is still alive. Not one of them, for all of their pride, not one of them, for all of their God complex, was able to change what happens to a man at the end of his days. He goes into the grave. 
He becomes dust. And then that man and all his pride will stand before Almighty and he will understand who God is. And he'll realize that he's not it. Nor are we. As God continues to speak of this city, He transitions from the physical to the spiritual in verse 11. He lamented the city. He condemned the leader who was called the Prince of Tyrus. Now He laments one who God calls the King of Tyrus. And what we are going to see is that this one is Satan. This is Satan. You will notice this distinction pretty clearly as we walk through these final verses. Let's read them together. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius and the topaz and the diamond and the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. Till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee, and thou shalt be a terror, and shalt thou be, and never shalt thou be any more. This is a lamentation like the one in chapter 27. I told you in chapter 27 that there was never another nation as I can find that had a lamentation given for it outside of Israel except for Tyre. In 28 we see a lamentation for the king of Tyre. A reflection upon all that this king was. And all that he is not anymore. The scriptures describe him as being full of wisdom. Perfect in beauty. Verse 13, he was in the Garden of Eden. Every precious stone was his covering. An amazing capacity to make music since the day of his creation. That's what verse 13 says. says, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes, musical instruments, was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. So in other words, he was so bright and so beautiful, it was as if precious stones were covering his body. Could you imagine seeing a sculpture made out of diamonds and emeralds and rubies and how beautiful that sculpture would be? Now imagine the exalted cherub Lucifer who had every precious stone for his covering. Every precious stone for his garments. He was beautiful. His workmanship and his pipes were prepared in him. He could sing and exalt the name of the Lord in an unmatched fashion. This is the king of Tyre. Verse 14 says, He was the anointed cherub set aside to walk upon God's holy mountain. Verse 15, He was perfect in His ways from the very day He was created. God says you are beautiful. You are perfect. You are everything you 
could have possibly been. Until one day. And that was the day iniquity was found in him. On the day of this angel's iniquity, all of the faculties in him created to reflect the beauty of his creator became vile, ugly, violent, corrupt. His beauty turned from being a beauty that pointed people to the truth to a beauty that deceived people into darkness. His voice originally used to glorify the name of God and exalt His name on high became an instrument to turn people toward rebellion. His wisdom that had made Him so beautiful and so glorious in His activity has now been turned against the Holy One and become disgusting. So God says in verse 16, He will cast the king of Tyrus from the mountain of God. Why? What was his iniquity? Verse 17 tells us his iniquity. He became proud. What was the iniquity that was found in the king of Tyrus? What was the iniquity that was found in Lucifer, in Satan? On the day that iniquity was found in him, it was pride. The Scriptures tell us his heart was lifted up because of his beauty. And his wisdom corrupted him by reason of his brightness. Just like the prince of Tyre who saw all of the things he had created and all of the wealth that he had amassed, and thought himself to be God, he said, I must be something better than a man. Look at how wise I am. Look at how strong I am. Look at what I have done. I must be better than a man. Lucifer one day looked at himself and said, look at my beauty. Look at my brightness. I must be better than an angel. I must be something more than just the anointed cherub. I must be something greater than just the exalted cherub. I must be God. The book of Isaiah gives us some insight into the mind of Satan the moment that iniquity was found in him. Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 tell us this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. His beauty elevated his pride and his pride brought him low. Rather than seeing what God had made in him and how God had made him as a blessed tool to be used to give God ultimate glory, he saw what he was as a tool by which to usurp God for himself. So God promises in verses 18 and 19 that God will bring fire upon him and that he will be destroyed and all that will behold him will see his destruction. And just like the city of Tyre, there's coming a day when the king of Tyre, Satan, that great adversary, will be no more. The final call of judgment in this chapter is against a nearby city to that of Tyre, the city of Sidon. God promised to send them pestilence to allow them to be destroyed for their wickedness as well. And the point of all this is found in chapter 28, verses 24 through 26. Look at them with me. And there shall be no more a pricking briar under the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn 
of all that are round about them that despise them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, when I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell safely therein and shall build houses and plant vineyards. Yea, they shall dwell with confidence when I have executed judgment upon all those that despise them round about them. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. The nations will no longer be a grief to the house of Israel in the day when God delivers them from their enemies. God will gather Israel, protect Israel, preserve Israel, and cause them to prosper. They will be safe from death from the nations round about them. And they will even be safe in that day from the king of Tyrus himself. They will be safe from Satan. If we were to theme these chapters, the theme would no doubt be pride. It was not too long ago in Ezekiel 17 that we looked at humility as a virtue of the righteous branch. Do you remember that? as we spoke about Jesus Christ as the righteous branch that would come, and how the righteous branch became a great cedar on the top of a hill. Do you remember that pictorial representation? But he began as a righteous branch. He began humble. Humility is the very capstone of Jesus Christ in His ministry. The one that we should emulate. Well, this evening we're looking at the opposite far different than the righteous branch, than the twig of the highest tree. The king of Tyrus, Satan, saw himself as something much grander than he was. And he, in his pride that had lifted him up high, will be brought low. Christ, who was made low, was lifted up. The one who lifts himself up is made low. That's what we are applying to our hearts this evening. Let's begin by defining pride. Pride will define this way. Giving the glory and uh, the honor of who I am or what I have done to myself rather than to God. Pride is giving the glory and honor of who I am or what I have done to myself rather than to God. Pride is taking that glory away from God and placing it upon me. Whether that means I'm thinking that I deserve the honor for what I have done or I am saying I deserve the honor for what I have done really doesn't matter. If I take the honor for myself, it is pride. And pride is when you boil it down the root of every sin, is it not? Take any of the Ten Commandments. Take all of the Ten Commandments. Think about one of those commandments. And when we commit that commandment knowingly against God, what are we doing but exercising the ultimate of pride? When I knowingly disobey the commands of God, what I am doing is I am telling God, God, I know what you have to say and I know what I want and what I want is more important than what you want. What I want is more important than what you want. In other words, God, I know that you say that sin will lead to destruction. I know you say that sin has consequences, but I don't believe you. I know better than you do how to live my life. I know better than you do what I ought to do. And so I am going to disobey my parents, even though you tell me in the Word of God, honor your father and your mother. I'm going to disobey my parents because I believe that I'm right, that by disobeying my parents, I will have a better outcome than if I obey them. You're wrong, God. I'm right. I am going to uh, not control my lust. I am going to covet because that thing that I want is more important to me and is more beneficial to me than obeying the Word of God. That's what we're saying, is it not? That God doesn't know as well as I know how to live my life. What is that but pride? Pride is what caused Satan to fall. And if you allow the sin of pride to root itself in your life, pride will cause you to fall as well. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. It's not enough just for us to know that pride is wrong. 
You know, as a matter of fact, that's the easy part. And it's the easy part, oftentimes, to identify the pride in our lives. The hard part is what do we do about it? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent the 70 witnesses, calling upon them to carry nothing but rather to allow God to meet their every need. He called upon them to go from house to house, telling of the kingdom of God to all that would receive them. If they receive you, wonderful. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And in verse 17, notice what it says. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. What a tremendous thing. God, we went out and we preached the kingdom of God and we did miracles in your name. And you know what? Even the demons themselves, even the demons were subject unto us through thy name. We went out and we said, the Lord rebuke you and that demon was gone. You, you gave us such power. Look at what happened when we went out. Just as you commanded. And what was Jesus' response? Well done. Right? No. It wasn't. And it wasn't, it wasn't really positive or negative. Notice what Jesus said. Verse 18. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. sends a shudder down my spine every time I read that verse. I saw Satan, Christ says, as lightning fall from heaven. You ever have somebody refuting whether or not Jesus is God? Take them to this verse. Would anyone other than God have seen Satan fall from heaven? God says, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus tells them, you know, Satan was pretty proud of the power that God had given him to. In the name of Jehovah God, Satan sang with beauty. In the name of Jehovah God, Satan was the most beautiful of the anointed cherubs. And on the day that Satan exalted his God-given ability above his God-granted mercy, he fell like lightning from heaven. Look at verse 19. Christ said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. Our lives are meant to be nothing more or less than an eager yielding to God because of all He has done for me. Folks, our rejoicing should not be in God's power through us. Our rejoicing should be in God's power in us. They came back and they said, God, look what we did through Your name. Jesus said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Don't rejoice that you have power over the scorpions. Don't rejoice in that you have power over the wicked one. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice that God has had such mercy on you that you can even be used of Him. Dial back your rejoicing. And don't focus on even what God has done through you. Focus on what God has done in you. God has been so merciful. Were it not for the mercy of God, where would you be today? Were it not for the grace of God, where would you be today? Forget about all of the the things that you have been able to do for God. Yes, by God's grace, you've done things for God. Praise the Lord. He has enabled you. He's given you a voice that you can sing unto His name. He's given you the means by which you can share the Gospel. He has given you a tremendous testimony in your community. All of those things. Praise the Lord for that. But you know where, where your rejoicing needs to lie? It needs to lie in the fact that you are saved. You are on your way to heaven. That you are a sinner saved by grace. Because really, regardless of what you do for God, you're nothing more than that. Regardless of how God might use you, you are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. 
The fact that God used you to see 10,000 people saved does not make you any more of a Christian than the person who gets saved on their deathbed. Both of them are sinners saved by grace. Jesus Christ says, do you want to rejoice in something? Do you want to well up with pride somewhere? Well up with pride when you think of what God has done in you. Well up with pride that God has shown Himself merciful. It's not your pride, it's pride in what God has done for you. See, because if we start to focus on what God has done through us, that's exactly what Satan did. He said, look at my beauty. Look, listen to my voice. Christ says, I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. Rejoice not that I have given you power. They didn't say, they didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can cast out demons. I can tread on scorpions. They said, Jesus, we have done this through your name. Jesus says, no, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That your name is written in heaven. How do you combat pride? As we close, two ways to combat pride. First, understand who God is and who you are according to God's Word. In Isaiah 6, we read that great vision of Isaiah standing before the Lord as the Lord is sitting on His throne. Isaiah sees the vision. He saw the glory and the majesty of God and the only thing he could say is, Wow! God gave me a really amazing vision today. I wonder if anyone else has ever seen this before. How good has God been to me that I got to see this? Nope. It's not what Isaiah said. God didn't go around, Isaiah didn't go around rejoicing that he saw a vision of the Lord's glory. He said, woe is me. I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, when we get a true picture of who God is, this is what happens. This doesn't say, wow, I finally understand who God is. Wow, look at me. I, ha- I understand something that they just aren't, they don't get it. They don't get it. Oh, if only they could get it. That's not what, that's not what understanding God does. Understanding what God does, does this. I learn something about God. God goes up and I go down in my estimation. God becomes exalted and I become humbled. That is what happens when we truly understand who God is. You want to combat pride in your life? Dig into the Word of God, see who God is, and then start to see who you are. Recognize God's perfection and then think about the last 30 minutes of your life. 15 minutes. 5 minutes. And realize that you are nothing in comparison to who God is. This happened in Psalm 8 when the psalmist looked at the universe around him and said, What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him as he looked at the stars? He didn't look up into those stars and say, Wow, I've really got a good handle on who God is. That's really great. He looked up at the stars and he said, God, what is man? That you're, that, that, what is man that he would even enter into your thoughts? This is what happened in the book of Ezekiel. Every time Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory of the Lord, he fell upon his face as a dead man, so much so that the angel had to help him to his feet every time. Same thing happened to Daniel. Do you want to fight pride in your life? Read the Bible and believe what it says about God and what it says about you. Believe Isaiah 64, 6, that says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
Moses reminds us in Psalm 90 that our days are very few when compared to an eternal God. And he says, teach us, God, to number our days. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that it is only by the grace of God that we are enabled to do anything for life and ministry. It is not me. He says, I rejoice in that it was the grace of God. And so as we see who God is, we see ourselves more clearly. And as we see who we are, we see God more clearly. And we will not rejoice in ourselves. We will not even rejoice in what we've done for God. We will rejoice in God's mercy. Second, how to combat pride. First, understand who God is and who you are according to God's Word. Second, folks, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Do you want to be sensitive to sin in your life? Do you want to be sensitive to the sin of pride? Do you want to know when pride crops up? Don't you hate it when you've looked back upon a circumstance and you've realized that you've done something wrong? Have you ever thought back to your teenage years and said, man, I was a mess? Have you ever thought back to a particular conversation and said, I can't believe I said that? What must that other person have been thinking about? me when I said that. You didn't even realize how proud you were. You didn't even realize how uh, strange you were speaking, whatever the case may be. Do you want to become sensitive to that in your life? Well, become sensitive to the Holy Spirit. As you listen to Him, you will be able to hear Him more clearly. Now, I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm talking about the clear leading of the Spirit of God that convicts our heart of sin and lays actions and words and desires upon our heart. When God brings Scripture to mind, when God rebukes our heart, when we've said something or done something and we know that it's wrong, that's the Holy Spirit working in our, our lives through our God-given conscience. And as you obey the Spirit of God and walk in the Spirit of God, you will find yourself more capable of living a spiritual life and that spiritual life will inherently direct your thoughts and actions toward God, bringing Him glory even at the expense of your own glory. We've seen this evening a pride of a city. It was a pride of a city that was built upon the pride of its leader, the Prince of Tyrus. And it was the pride of a leader that was rooted in the sin that led to the very fall of Satan from heaven. Satan's sin was pride. Lifted up. Exalted against God. And as we close tonight, let's close by seeing the pride in ourselves. It doesn't have to be the kind of wicked pride that would throw up a red flag. Maybe you're on the path toward the same pride that the 70 were on the path toward in Luke chapter 10. Maybe we're on the path toward that same pride that as we realize how much we know about God, or as we see how God has used us in the present or in the past, we begin to say, yeah, look at what God's done through me. Look at how God has used me. Jesus' response to those thoughts in your heart is, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Don't rejoice that God has used you. Don't rejoice that you've been given power through the Holy Spirit. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in God's mercy. Because as the song says, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. The beginning of that song, Not have I gotten, but what I've received. If God has used you, praise the Lord, God has used you, He has done the work. You are a vessel. You're a vessel that's been redeemed by the Almighty God. Thank God that your name is written in, the he in, the, in heaven, in the book of life. As the Holy Spirit puts His thumb on areas of pride in your life this evening, will you deal with them? Will you take those to the Lord and confess them? Do you see the path of pride that you're heading down? Will you take care of it? 
Have you begun to think of yourself as something maybe a little bit better than those around you? Would you take care of that? Do you see blatant pride in your life? Are you, are you proud of your beauty? Are you proud of your abilities to the extent where you have stripped from God the glory that is due to His name for how He has made you and you have put that glory upon yourself or sought that glory for yourself? Have you looked for how others might commend you for what you do or what you are at the expense of commending God for how He has made you and how He has gifted you? Let's be very honest with our hearts this evening. The psalmist asked God, Search me, O God, and try my heart. Know me and try my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray that prayer to God this evening as we have our sila in just a moment? And allow God to truly uproot those areas of pride that might be hiding in the closets of your heart and life.